Amen. Let us pray. be more than just words to us. May it truly affect the way we speak, the way we think, and the way we act, so that your kingdom may come, and your will be done in our lives and through your church. Amen. I begin uh, with a confession, Mr. Deputy Superintendent. Um, I suffer from serious FOMO. Uh, If you don't know what FOMO is, it's fear of missing out. Um, It's particularly evident when I'm in a social setting. Uh, For example, last Tuesday, I had the privilege of attending the Pantomime Awards hosted by Christopher Biggins. Life is nothing if not varied. Um, Imagine, if you will, the Olivier Awards with all the grandeur and splendor on a budget with C-list celebrities. That's the Pantomime Awards, and I got to be there. And I got to to go to the after-show party as well. Uh, But I had to be dragged away from said party uh, to make sure I caught the last train home. But I wanted to stay right till the end, just in case, just in case somebody else came in who I could spot, or just in case something else happened. I currently have serious FOMO about the musical Cabaret. Um, The Methodist stipend, unfortunately, doesn't stretch far enough for me to be able to afford the price of the tickets uh, for Cabaret at the moment. Um, And I I, I just want to go and see it. I'm I'm longing to see it. I've had great reviews about it, but I just can't go at the moment. Serious FOMO. I guess it's all part of the reason why I serve as a university chaplain. Um, It's part of my curious some might say nosy uh, nature, to be interested in people's lives and their experiences. And I want to be around them to support them through those things. Quite simply, I want to be in the room where it happens. That phrase comes from a song, from a musical that I have actually been able to see, uh, the musical Hamilton. It tells the true story of Alexander Hamilton, uh, one of America's lesser-known founding fathers. Hamilton is an immigrant from the Caribbean. Hamilton is born outside a marriage. And when he arrives uh, in the musical setting, he's also an orphan. But he rises to prominence throughout all of this uh, in in the, the context of the American politics much to the intrigue of his friend and his rival, Aaron Burr. In Act Two, Hamilton, uh, he's under pressure from George Washington. Uh, He sits down with Jefferson and Madison to reach uh, a political compromise. And this all happens behind closed doors. As a result of this meeting, Hamilton gets his financial plans through, which leads to the founding of the National Bank, while the Virginians are allowed to place the capital. Only three men were present, and no one really knows what went on in the room where it happened. Least of all, Aaron Burr. And his motives are finally revealed in the song that he sings, 
as he expresses his simple, envy-fueled desire for political power. And that cements him in the piece as the antagonist. Aaron Burr must simply be in the room where it happens. The disciple Thomas is sometimes cast as a bit of an Aaron Burr figure. Maybe not to the extreme of envy-fueled desire for political power, but he's forever known in the negative as doubting Thomas because he wasn't in the room where it happened on that first Easter, that first Easter evening. Well, I want to start a campaign to rename him as Honest Thomas rather than Doubting Thomas. Because it it seems to me that he just says what everyone else was thinking, all of the other disciples, when they were in the room where it happened. So let's look in parallel for a moment at those two accounts that we hear in John's Gospel when Jesus appears. In the first account, the doors in the house where the disciples had gathered were locked for fear of the Jews. This isn't a group of people who are overjoyed at the news that Jesus has risen from the dead. They're confused. They're in fear. They're not really sure of what the meaning of the the events of that day meant. In the second account, as they gather with Thomas a whole week later, John tells us again that the doors were locked. The same thing happens. In the first account, Jesus appears and says, peace be with you. No response. He shows his hands and his side, and only then, only then do they rejoice in recognition of who is standing in front of them. But Jesus has to state again, peace be with you. In the second account, Thomas sees exactly the same as the other disciples. The only difference is that Thomas has actually vocalized that this is what he needs. He needs to see Jesus. And not just to see, but to touch, to believe. It's interesting that Thomas is willing to touch the wounds Maybe he's showing a deeper commitment to identify with Jesus' sacrifice and suffering. So Jesus appears. He knows what Thomas has gone through. He knows what he said. He knows how honest he's been. And he invites Thomas to place his hands in his wounds. But in the end, seeing is enough for Thomas too. And he utters a statement of belief much deeper than the other disciples. He explicitly acknowledges the divinity of Jesus, my Lord and my God. And then we get this statement from Jesus. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. It's where we get that saying from seeing is believing. 
Some people like to present that as a rebuke from Jesus towards Thomas. But I don't detect that at all. Don't forget that all of the disciples, all of them, are in the same boat here, not just Thomas. They all believe because they were in the room where it happened and saw Jesus for themselves. Serious FOMO on my part there, I have to say. And crucially, it's every believer ever since who didn't share that experience. So, far from being doubting Thomas, I want to assert that he is simply honest Thomas, the one to vocalise what everyone else is really thinking. In his poem, uh, In Memoriam, Alfred Lord Tennyson said this, there lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds. There lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds. I wonder if he had Thomas in mind. The only real discernible difference between these two accounts is the commissioning in the first account. But even here, there is no reason to think that Thomas wasn't commissioned since he's named as one of the disciples, one of the apostles in the book of Acts. And in that reading, we see some of the outworking of what the disciples have experienced and how that plays out in their life and their ministry. In that commissioning, Jesus sends the disciples as the Father has sent him. That is, they're sent out with new life and in peace. But they're sent with a purpose. And it's one of great responsibility. Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit on them. This is the same Spirit who breathed life in creation. The same Spirit of truth promised earlier in John's Gospel. And the one who forgave those who crucified him just two days before and promised that a criminal would be with him in paradise. He is the one to charge the disciples with the power to forgive sins or to retain them, but not in their own strength, in the strength and the power of the spirit of truth. So, one week on after Easter, on this low Sunday when we might be tempted to go and hide under the pews, when the joy of Easter might be fading slightly? What can we take from this story? Well, firstly, with Jesus' words to Thomas, we can take it that it's, it's the response to Jesus that matters, not necessarily what leads us there. The disciples and Thomas all believe because they were in the room where it happened but they believe nonetheless. And in their response, their faith is deepened. They may have still had doubts. They may have still been confused. They they probably didn't work out for some time what any of this really meant. But in their honest doubting, their faith deepens. 
Just to personalize that for a moment, there, there are moments where I understand what the resurrection means with utter clarity and can see Jesus at work clearly. I feel like I'm in the room where it's happening and my response of faith is easy. But there are other moments where, where I just simply don't get it, where I don't understand what's going on. And I look on with envy as others seem to be in a better place than I am with their faith. And certainly as I look on at the world at the moment, it's hard to be overjoyed when people are hurting, when people are fleeing homes, when people are watching loved ones murdered at the hands of an enemy. It's easier to bear hatred. And then I'm taken back to Jesus' words. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. That's a huge challenge. But underpinning that challenge is our initial response to Jesus. And an initial response to that invitation to look upon his wounds of sacrifice as our risen saviour. Secondly, we too are sent as the first disciples are sent. Jesus, is, Jesus breathes his spirit of truth on us, his church, and sends us out in peace, right into this world so desperately in need of peace. And it's with this awesome responsibility to forgive or to retain sins. So we need to take that responsibility seriously and first turn the gaze back on our own lives, on our church, and see where we need to first ask forgiveness for ourselves. Where do our attitudes, our behaviors, our practices speak of anything other than the inclusive, radical, extravagant love of God shown in the resurrected Jesus. And remember that Jesus told a parable about taking the plank out of our own eye before we look at the speck of sawdust in somebody else's. And thirdly, a word of reassurance. The final two verses of our gospel reading tell us why the book was written as testimony so that those of us who weren't in the room where it happened might believe and not just believe but to have life in his name. In other words, to share this new and risen life that the disciples experience and take that life into the world around us. So what is your response to that testimony? Thomas doesn't need to touch the wounds in the end. It's Jesus' presence that's enough. And that's as true now as it was for those disciples then. Blessed are those who have not seen you and me and yet have come to believe Hopefully, you and me. 
Do we believe that Jesus is as present with us now through his Holy Spirit as he was then in the room where it happened? Because in our faith and in our honest doubt, Jesus' presence is enough. In our joy and in our sorrow, Jesus' risen presence is enough. In the chaos and the peace of this world and our lives, Jesus' risen presence is enough. So wherever we are, the risen Christ is present and will always be with us in the room where it happens, saying, peace be with you. So there's no more need for FOMO. Thanks be to God. Amen.